0: Starting out today, had this thought. You can tell a lot about a person by the way they are in your phone contacts, right? Now, for me, I don't have a great memory, so I don't just put people's names. I have to put how I know them. Whose mom or dad is it? Like, what do they do? And that way it jogs my memory. And the way that you can record somebody in your phone, it just tells a lot about the way that you see that person. And so that got me thinking, I wonder how other people put contacts in their phones. And I found a few good, specific, and funny ones online that that sort of paint the picture. Because when you read the contact, you can just, in your mind, picture who this person is, or they might be. So here's here's one I found. Gus, the good mechanic when he's sober. (laughs) Right? Like, there's a lot of information there. His name's Gus. He's a good mechanic. But you want to catch him on a day when he's not on the sauce, and he's going to be much better at his job. It's just very, very specific. One person had this in their phone. Crazy X, do not answer. I don't know why the number is still in your phone, if they're really that crazy, but it's like there's just enough of a hope that maybe someday, maybe someday it'll work out, but in the meantime, now remember all the crazy stuff you don't wanna answer, and live your life in such a way where you don't end up as that in somebody's phone, by the way. <laughs> One that I really loved was a guy who had an identical twin brother, same genetics, same DNA, same everything, and so he was in the phone as this, twin bro, spare parts. <laughs> right, it's funny, right? You run, your, your kidney goes out, He's got one just like it. I can borrow his. Now, for those of you who um, know my wife Ashley, she, I wish she could be here today. She is amazing, she is awesome. And, and in our little duo, she is in every way the more talented, gifted, and impressive one by far. But there is one, one area where I feel like I've got her beat. I feel like that I'm the more romantic of the two. She's the more practical, I'm the more romantic. And here's evidence from our phones to kind of paint this picture. So this is an actual screenshot, my phone, of Ashley. In my phone, she's, sweetie, and there's a heart, and there's wind in her hair, and she's so pretty. And so even when I, like, call her, I have to tell Siri, Siri, call, sweetie. And isn't that sweet? So one day I was curious. I wonder what I am in her phone, right? And there's so many things it could be. The Italian stallion, <laughs> Man candy. Like I just didn't know, like there's so many things it could be. And so one day I picked up her phone and I'm like, I'm gonna find myself in her phone. And I promise this is 100% true, you can, you can call and ask. I got her phone, I found my contact and it was the very romantic contact of Dave Willis. Dave Willis, not even just Dave. Like, I have to specify when I call. Like, which Dave? It's Dave Willis. You saw me naked like an hour ago. Why, why am I Dave Willis in your phone? There's not even a picture. I will say, though, since I took this screenshot, I have been updated to at least being also an emergency contact. So it's progress, right? It's baby steps. Baby steps. Like, why am I starting out with this? Well, part of it is because of my adult ADHD. But another part of it is... I think so often in life, when we're unclear about our own identity or the identity of somebody else, it does more to sabotage relationships than anything else. I love this series you guys are in, "Awakened Sleeper. I love it. I've been watching them online. It's been incredible. And I hope you've been paying attention. If you've missed any of Pastor Brandon's message, go go back and watch these. But one thing that keeps us in a lull, keeps us from truly awakening to who we are in Christ, is I think if God was in our cell phone, Some of us have the wrong descriptive contact in their forum. Who is he to you? I think for some of us, it would say something like distant, out-of-touch rule-giver or angry, disappointed father. And if we have the wrong view of who God is, we're going to have the wrong view of everything else. We're going to have the wrong view of who, who we are. And we need to, first off, say, Lord, help me to see you clearly. Help me to see who you are, your wonderful counselor, everlasting father, mighty God, prince of peace, Lord, savior, king. And you are for me and you are with me. You're Emmanuel, God with us. And because of all the reality of who you are, I can see who I am. I'm, I'm redeemed, forgiven, beloved, adopted. I'm a son. I'm a daughter. And we've got to see God clearly. We've got to see ourselves clearly or else the world is going to try to tell us who we are. And we're going to have a broken view of who we are. And we're gonna stay in that lull and when God is calling us to awaken. And so today in the time we've got in this series, I've got a message for you that's called Finish Strong. And we're gonna look at a story of a guy in the Bible who made a lot of mistakes. He, he made a lot of mistakes. I think part of the reason why is because he lived his life without a clear view of who God was and a clear view of who he was. He let pride speak into his life more than he let God's truth speak into his life. But at the end, He chose to humble himself, and he finished strong. And because of that, because of that, he's now remembered as a hero of the faith. And it's hope for all of us who've messed up. It's hope for all of us who've made mistakes along the way. So the guy we're going to look at today is a character in the Bible who's always fascinated me because from the youngest time I can remember being in Sunday school and having flannel graphs up on the wall, this guy was like a superhero. And we all like a superhero. His name was Samson. God had given him supernatural strength, God had called him to something that was a, a huge and important mission to help deliver his people Israel from their oppressors and enslavers, the Philistines. So Samson had a lot going for him. But as we're gonna see in his story, Samson made a lot of mistakes, a lot of mistakes. But thankfully, by God's grace, we don't have to be defined by our mistakes because of what Jesus has done for us. We can be redeemed and set free and defined by his grace instead of our own sin. So There's a lot we can learn from his story. So if you've got your Bible with you, you can open up the book of Judges where Samson's story is found. If you don't have a Bible, though, don't worry. We're going to have all this on the screen behind me. A little backstory of what was going on in Judges at the time. The time of the Judges in Israel's history was a really unique time. It was kind of a chaotic time. There was not a king yet. And so judges were set to, appointed to, to rule the people. But there wasn't centralized leadership. And because there wasn't centralized leadership, The Bible tells us everybody just did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And I think that's an interesting commentary, even on where we are today, 3,000 years later, that people are just doing whatever seems right to them. You know, you turn on the news, you look at social media, and everybody's following their own truth, whatever that means. And when everybody's just doing whatever feels right to them, it creates chaos, it creates confusion. And we've got to realign ourselves with the truth of saying, God, I want to submit to to your will, not mine. I want to follow your truth, not my feelings. And so Samson was born into this chaotic time. And before we dive into his story, the first principle we can learn about his life is this. He was super strong, but no amount of physical strength can ever be a substitute for strength of character. And I think that in our pride, in our human nature, sometimes we will lean on our own strength. It might not be physical strength, it might be financial strength. It might be the strength of of the title on our business card. We'll look to something other than God to find our true identity. And when that happens, pride is puffing us up and we're setting ourselves up for a fall. And that's certainly what happened to Samson. But let's dive into his story in Judges beginning in chapter 13. Here's how it started. There was a certain man of Zorah, the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. At the time, The Philistines, Israel's neighbors, they were bullies. They were overtaking Israel, enslaving Israel, taunting Israel. And because Israel didn't have a king, centralized leadership, an army of their own, they were just kind of at the hands of these bullies. And God's saying, I got a plan for my people to to help deliver them from that. And Samson is going to be part of that plan. He's going to have supernatural strength. He's going to have a really unique calling. He is going to deliver them. But I want Samson to live in a unique way. He's got to do something called... Be a Nazarite. You think, well, what is that? In the Old Testament, there was a vow that you could take called the Nazarite vow, which essentially set you apart for God's work in in an extra unique way. It wasn't for everybody, but some people did it. Three people in Scripture were called to do it from birth. Everybody else just decided to do it on their own that was a Nazarite. The three people that were called from birth to do it were the prophet Samuel, Samson, and then the last of the Nazarites in the New Testament, John the Baptist. Because then Jesus came, established a new covenant, and the, the old covenant that the Nazarite vow was a part of no longer was relevant. Now, John the Baptist and Samuel both voluntarily said, yeah, even though I was assigned this at birth, I'm going to live this way because it's God's plan for me. But Samson, Samson chose not to because Samson was full of pride. He's like, I'm basically a superhero. Why do I have to live this way? Now, the Nazarite vow only included three specific things that you had to do. And they seemed kind of random on the surface. First thing you couldn't do was cut your hair. So You just had long flowing locks. And so Samson wasn't gonna cut his hair, or he wasn't supposed to. Second thing you weren't supposed to do was ever touch anything that was dead, because that would make you ceremonially unclean, and so you were to stay away from, from dead things. And the third thing was you were not to drink anything that grew on a vine. It could be grape juice or it could be anything that was fermented. You weren't allowed to drink alcohol, you weren't allowed to drink any form of juice that grew on a vine. You think That is so random. What do those three things have to do with one another? Well, they were all symbolic. You know, you don't cut your hair as a way to symbolize, like, I'm I'm dedicating my my head to God's work. You don't touch the dead things, so I'm I'm dedicating my hands to God's work. And stomach and the heart and the the Old Testament understanding were connected by not drinking a certain thing. You're you're essentially saying, I'm dedicating my my heart, my insides, inside and outside, I'm dedicating myself to God's work in this really unique way. So Samson was called to this, but as we're going to see, he didn't live by it. He kind of lived by his own rules. But I love the way his story starts out. God, from the very beginning, said, I got a plan for you. Before you are even born, I had a plan for you. And I think there's a temptation for all of us to, to look at people like Samson or anybody in the Bible and think, well, yeah, obviously God had a plan for their lives. They're in the Bible, but he didn't have a plan for me. I mean, I'm just a regular person. But here's a, a beautiful truth that the Bible gives us. God had a plan for your life before you were even born. Psalm says he knit you together in your mother's room. Before he even formed you, he already knew you. That means, guys, your parents might have told you you were an accident. You weren't an accident. God knew you were coming. He had a plan for you before you even got here. He loved you and he had a plan for you. And I think maybe we we look at our lives and we say, well, maybe God had a plan for me, but I feel like I've already blown it because my life doesn't look like I thought it was going to look at this point. Especially around Christmas time, right? I mean, we're at Christmas time, it's a wonderful time of the year, and we sing, it's the most wonderful time of the year, and it certainly can be. But I think maybe a more honest description of this season, the Christmas season, is it's the most amplified time of the year. Meaning all the good things in your life feel amplified, they feel even better at Christmas. But what we don't talk about is the hard things in your life, the disappointments in your life, they feel even harder at this time of year. And, and in that way, it can be a, a lonely and discouraging time, especially when we're looking at everybody else's highlight reels on Instagram, all these, these airbrush-filtered photos, and it seems like everybody's got this perfect life, and they're doing exactly what they want to do and meant to do. And my life, by comparison, my relationships, my marriage, my, my grades, my whatever, it's just not there. So if God has a plan for me, either I've blown it, or it must not be much of a plan, we think. And that's a really dangerous thought, guys. Let me, let me describe it this way. So a few years back, my family and I were at Walmart. And taking young children to Walmart is, as a Christian, I hope, is as close to the reality of hell as I'm ever going to be. It's a, it's a really, there's something that happens to them when they get to Walmart. They, never, they don't act this way in Target. They know Target's a classy place. But you get them in Walmart and they just know this is a place where the the inner demons can be let loose or whatever. And they just start going mad. And so we've had a lot of stories at Walmart. Like there was one time when when Connor, our second kid, he was about four or five, there was a big Christmas tree shaped red wine display. You know where it's going. And he grabbed a bottle off the bottom. And that Christmas tree thing came down and it put glass and red wine everywhere. And then Connor just set down the bottle, slowly backed away, And we had to call over some employees to like cord it off and clean it up. And they were looking at us in a way, I don't know if you've ever had anybody look at you, but it's like, if if eyes had the power to cuss, they were cussing at us. And we've had some of those stories at Walmart, but there was one day in Walmart, Christmas time, we walked by this display of, of gingerbread house kits. And the kids asked, Daddy, can we get that? Normally I'd just be like, no, no. That's the one word you need at Walmart is just no. But on this day, I thought, you know what, yes, because in my head what I was doing is I was planning this magical Christmas evening and I was picturing the way it was going to be. And it was like a Charles Dickens novel. So like we were all going to be in these like old timey suits and a crackling fire. And for some reason, my children were now going to have British accents when they said, oh, Father, God bless you. You're the best father. (laughs) And we make this beautiful little gingerbread house and it was going to be a magic memory that we would we would cherish forever. But that's not how real life works. So what happened instead is we bought the gingerbread house. They got in the car. My two older boys, they start fighting over it. And they're they're wrestling back and forth. And I'm yelling, stop it. You're ruining Christmas. Stop it. And we get home, open up the gingerbread box, dump out the contents. And all of those walls of gingerbread that were meant to make the house are just broken. And I was so mad. It was $10, guys. That's back, And I was... It was a time in life when $10 meant a lot. I'm like, ten dollars. Oh, I was so mad. I'm like, this is done, I'm done, I'm throwing this thing away. Just this is the worst night ever. And Ashley, my sweet, amazing wife, she was like, sweetie, why are you throwing that away? Or more she said, Dave Willis, why <laughs> why are you throwing that away? I said, it's ruined, it's broken. I said, it's never gonna look like the picture on the box. She said, it doesn't have to look like the picture on the box. She said, the picture on the box isn't real. The family didn't make that. You know, some marketing person made that. Let's take what we got and have fun with it. So we dumped out all those broken pieces of gingerbread, and we ended up decorating them and making these really odd-shaped shards of gingerbread into cookies, and we were putting icing on each other's noses. And we ended up laughing and having more fun that night than... We'd had in a long time, so much so that it actually became a tradition in our house that for years after, we would buy a gingerbread house, and just to save us the trouble we knew was coming, we broke the pieces ourselves, and we would just start making stuff with them. And it took the pressure off. It took the pressure off of saying, we got to create it to look just like this, or else it's a failure. And we said, no, we're, we're going to have fun. We're going to do a real-life gingerbread night. We're going to start with broken pieces, and we're going to have fun anyway. And guys, that's, that's what life, Christmas, it's about. You, you give God the broken pieces, the disappointments, the, the parts of your life that, that don't look exactly like the picture on the box you had for yourself as a kid to say, this is what my life's gonna look like when I'm 20 or 30 or 50 or 70 or whatever it is. And then life doesn't look like that. And instead of thinking, I'm a failure. God must have forgotten about me. He must not have a good plan for me. I say, no, that picture I had wasn't from God in the first place. It wasn't real. Instead, God, take the the real parts of my life and let me be thankful for what I have and what you've given me and let me give it to you as an offering. And the most joyful people I know aren't the ones whose lives look like the picture on the box. They're the ones who are the most thankful for what they have, that cherish the moments, that that spend their time loving God, loving people, and, and living, living with full hearts in response to all God has done for them. And so if this Christmas you find yourselves feeling like, My life's broken. My plans are broken. Whether it's a result of your own choices or or circumstances out of your control, have peace of knowing God's, he's not forgotten you. He's not done with you. He has got a great and a beautiful plan for you. But free yourself from the trap of feeling like life has to look like this and instead say, God, you're in control. I give you the broken pieces. Make something beautiful with them. So we're going to pick up Samson's story. Flash forward, Samson has grown up at this point, and what we see in Samson's life is he's kind of an entitled, bratty, muscular dude. I mean, he just, he's not very likable. He takes things by force. Instead of a protector, he's kind of become a bully. He disregards a lot of what God has told him to do, and he doesn't feel any sense of responsibility or accountability to anyone outside of himself which is a lonely way to live. His first marriage was to a, a Philistine woman. Again, the Philistines were the sworn enemies of Israel, but he, he found one and liked the way she looked. And he was like, well, I don't care if there are enemies. I'm marrying that one. But his first marriage only lasted a couple of days. We see a pattern of broken relationships in his life. And uh, he felt offended by his wife's family. And so one of the first battles he engages with in the Philistines wasn't to protect his people Israel being oppressed, it was a personal vendetta of his own pride being wounded, and he attacks them in response. And in Judges chapter 15, we pick up the story. When he, Samson, came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. The ropes that were on his arms became as flax that had caught fire. His bonds melted off his hands, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck down a thousand men. And then Samson said with the jawbone of a donkey heaps upon heaps with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men as soon as he would finished speaking he threw away the jawbone out of his hand and that place was called Ramath Lehi which means jawbone hill so essentially Samson goes to war got, with his God given super strength to take down all these guys just because he had felt personally offended but look at how he chose to do it of all of the weapons he could have picked up he used the jawbone of a donkey, wanted to just kind of insult them like I could beat you with anything. But remember, as part of the Nazarite vow, what's one thing you're not supposed to touch? Something dead. Samson didn't care about the rules. This wasn't the first time he had touched something dead. In fact, he touched several dead things that we see. You know, he'd, he'd scooped like a honeycomb out of a dead lion at this point in the story. We'd see that he'd already broken the, the rule about Not drinking from the vine. He throwed himself a rager of a bachelor party, you know, a few chapters earlier. Like, he was just doing whatever he wanted to do because that's what pride convinces us is okay. Pride is that little voice that says, you know, I can do what I want. I'm strong. And because I'm strong, the rules don't apply to me. You know, I've I've got uh, one of the kids in our family, he's super strong. And because of that, he feels like I'm a superhero. The rules don't apply to me. And he is, he's very intimidating when he flexes. His I brought a picture of him. Um, so <laughs> that's, <laughs> he, that's Chatham. He's here, he's here with me today. And he is a little superhero. He's, he's, he's a lot of fun. That has nothing to do with the sermon. I just wanted to show you that picture. <laughs> but we can't let pride get in the way. Now, here's why. Pride is a sin, but I'm convinced of this. It's also the soil where all other sin takes root. Because in, in Christian circles, pride has almost become like this respectable sin. It's what you confess to in small group when everybody else is confessing something and you want to participate but you don't want to actually reveal anything. You're like, well, I'm struggling with pride. And it's just vague enough to sound like, well, I guess that's a confession. But we don't even really mean it as a sin. We more mean it like, well, I mean, uh, clearly I have a lot to be prideful about. And it's <laughs> kind of a big deal, and I'm just uh, dealing with it. But pride is that voice that says, do things your way. And I once heard a preacher said that old Frank Sinatra song My Way is probably the theme song in hell. <laughs> and I loved that song, which was really depressing. You know, I did it my way, I did it my way. But the truth is, we can't just do it our way. God has called us to something more. He said, No, you got to do it God's way. Because when we do it our way, people get hurt. When we do it our way, we're not looking out for the best interest of others, and we're certainly not looking for how we can serve and how we can follow Jesus. We're just looking for our own interests. And pride is so isolating. When we live with pride, we live a lonely life. We, we alienate people, but then pride convinces us the reason why we're alone is it's everybody else's fault. It's all of them. It's not me. Pride is, is so toxic, but it's, it's how Samson lived, And when you look at his life, here's a guy who had everything in the world going for him, but he had nothing that really mattered. No real friends, no healthy romantic relationships, no family of his own, because he used people instead of loving them. He used them. They're there there for me. I'm the man. They're there to serve me. He was a womanizer. At least one time, we see him with a prostitute. And the way that that story is recorded, you get the idea that that's probably a regular part of his life. I mean, he just did whatever he wanted to do and thought there would be no consequences. But when we trade temporary pleasure for permanent regret, what happens, we're living for the moment and we're sabotaging our future in the process. And that's what Samson was doing, whether he realized it or not. So we're gonna pick up the story again when when the most famous of his uh, love affairs enters the picture. Her name was... Delilah. If you don't listen to the radio, that doesn't mean anything. But, There's a lady named Delilah on the radio. Delilah was just as vain as Samson. So I don't know if they met on like, you know, Philistine Tinder or I don't know where they met. But they swiped right for each other and it was about to get messy. So I'm going to read another passage. There's a lot of scripture. I'm using a lot of scripture today because my preaching mentor back home in Kentucky, a guy named Bob Russell great guy great country preacher soft-spoken dude that led a huge church but he just gave really sound practical advice all the time and there was a young group of us preachers there one day and he was like now fellers listen to me whenever you're preaching always use lots of scripture that way you'll know at least something you said is actually true (laughs) so it's good advice right it's actually true So, this part's actually true. (laughs) Judges chapter 16, verse 4. After all this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. And the Lord, it's hard to say her name without, I don't know. (laughs) The lords of the Philistines came to her and said, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him and humble him, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where you get your great strength and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. So of all the dysfunctional relationships, this one's the most dysfunctional. Your woman is actively, for money, trying to kill you. And if you ever find yourself in this kind of situation, break up, right? <laughs> doesn't take a marriage ministry person to, to say that. If you, if you are dating someone who is actively trying to kill you, I shouldn't have to tell you to break up. But Samson, how hot was this woman? Like, this is more than an episode of Dateline. Like, she is for money, trying to kill you. But he feels so invincible that he's like, ah, she might want to kill me, but she can't. I'm Samson. Guys, here's here's some relationship advice. You young single people, or older single people, choose relationships based on good character, not good chemistry. Not just good chemistry. I mean, our world says, man, if, if you're attracted to him, that, that's for you. You're, you can be attracted to some stuff, some, some people, some things, some places that are just not good for you. They're just not. If a person doesn't have character, if they don't love Jesus and love you and really have a heart after God, then run. Run the other way. You're like, I'm going to lead him to the Lord. no. And let somebody else, you know, pray for him from a distance. Invite <laughs> them to church, but no. I think part of why we get we get ourselves in, in unhealthy relationships is again, it's kind of the gingerbread house phenomenon. We think we think that all these these love stories have to have to look this certain way, and if you got these, it has to look just like this. I think Christmas time actually amplifies this because Christmas is throwing us all kinds of unrealistic love stories. How many of you guys watch the Hallmark Channel, right? Yes, there you are. There you are. I just saw 300 female hands and one dude, I think. Like, when I... <laughs> if you've never watched a Hallmark movie, they used to just show Christmas love story movies in December. Now it's, it's all year. You turn it on in July, and it's like, you know, Christmas in Dollywood, by, you know, and, and it's July. Why are they at Dollywood? And... Th- okay, I, if you've never watched a Hallmark Christmas movie... Just so you never have to, I'm going to give you the plot of every single one. Because I've had to sit through a few, and it's the same plot. Okay, here's the plot. This is it. Madison was raised in a small town, but now she's a big city girl. (laughs) She's got a big city job. But she's been unlucky in love. She recently got engaged, though to a rich, handsome stockbroker. He's kind of a jerk, but he's so rich and so handsome. But before they can get married, she has to go back to her hometown for some reason, and she's totally bummed about it. She goes back home. She talks to her parents, and she's so frustrated. They just don't get her at all. And so to clear her head, she goes on a walk through the woods. And there in the woods, she sees a sexy lumberjack. Why is there a sexy lumberjack so close to my parents' house? She gets a little closer. His hair is perfect. He's not sweating at all, even though he's working hard. Wait a second. I know him. That's Chad from high school. He's that nerdy guy who had a crush on me. And now he's a sexy lumberjack. How funny. So Chad and Madison go get some coffee. And before long, she starts having feelings. Wait a second, but I've got this big city life. I'm about to get married. But she can't help the feeling she's having for Chad. So she makes a leap of faith. She breaks up with her big city boyfriend and quits her job, and she decides to move back to her snow-covered hometown. And Chad is going to be her husband. She's content to marry a poor lumberjack, but just then he pulls out the biggest diamond she's ever seen. Chad, you're just a lumberjack. How could you afford that? Oh, didn't I tell you? I recently launched a multi-million dollar scented candle company. I'm even richer than your big city boyfriend. And they laugh. They kiss under the mistletoe. Merry Christmas. That's it, everyone. You never have to watch it. Because Chad and Madison are going to get together every time. You can watch the first half of one movie, the second half of a different movie, and it all fits together. You know what's going to happen. And that's just not how real life works. I mean, if you end up with a sexy lumberjack, that's fine. That's great. But, you know, real relationships, they take work. It's more than just the, the chemistry and, and, you know, the perfect snow falling and, and the music in the background. And yeah, those moments are cool, but that's just not real life. It's just not real life. Real life, the love grows because you struggle together. The real life, the love grows because you serve together, because of all the moments when things aren't... Perfect and you both don't look beautiful, but real love is growing through that friendship, that commitment to one another. I've got a friend named Jamie who's a police officer back in Georgia where we live, and and part of his job is he has the the difficult work of having to give death notifications. If somebody tragically dies in a car wreck or if if somebody dies in their home, he shows up on the scene to make sure everything's all right. And he said, he said one time, said Jamie, what did you do this week? He's like, Well, yesterday I went to this 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 house because this uh, elderly lady who'd been on hospice had passed away and I was the first one on the scene and her husband was there holding her hand and I walked in and I looked around this house and it was a simple house. They were not wealthy people but all over the walls there were, there were pictures of, of them and laughing and there were pictures of family and there were, there were evidence of their faith in Christ all through this, this simple house and this man was holding her hand and gently weeping and he looked up and he saw me and the first thing out of his mouth, he said, 64 years. We were married for 64 years. He said, it wasn't nearly long enough. I mean, that's, that's real life. I mean, that's, that's real when you've, when you've served and loved and you've bled together with someone. You've prayed together with someone. And you've been faithful to one another. And you've, you've held each other's hand to the end when, when they were going to be with Jesus and knowing you You'd be there too someday. Like, that's real love. More than, more than any movie could ever capture. And it takes a whole lot longer than two hours to get there. You know, it takes, it takes a lifetime. But Samson, like a lot of folks in, in our modern time, he wasn't willing to put in the work that it takes to have a real relationship thrive. He, he wanted just whatever feels good in the moment. And if we live our lives based only on what feels good in the moment, then we end up with just that momentary Relationships, Temporary pleasure, but permanent regret. And Delilah, Delilah was going to keep asking Samson the secret to his strength and then trying to use that against him so that he could be captured by the Philistines. And instead of breaking up like a rational person, Samson kept her around, finally giving in to her nagging and saying, fine, if you cut my hair, my strength will go. But you see, I don't think Samson really thought his strength would go. I think he really thought, I'm invincible. And yeah, I'm not supposed to cut my hair, but I'm not supposed to do most of what I've done all my life. And I'm as strong as ever. So nothing can really stop me. So he told her that just out of pride. She cut his hair and he woke up. And for whatever reason, that, that was the moment when that supernatural gift, God chose to pull it away from him. And he woke up like the rest of us. His knees hurt. Everything was creaky. I was like, what is this? Philistines came. They captured him. Instead of killing him, they forcibly blinded him in in one of the most gruesome and violent scenes depicted in Scripture anywhere. And then they enslaved him so that he could be a spectacle that the Philistines could come and mock. This is the guy we were so afraid of. And look at him now. Grinding grain for us. He can't see a thing. Nobody cares about him. We got nothing to be afraid of now. And they would just come and watch this guy in chains and laugh. But something was happening when Samson was in chains, blinded. For the first time in his life, he started to actually see spiritually. For the first time in his life, his, his heart went from being hardened with pride to being open to, to God's loving rebuke. And he started to grow in his faith waiting for an opportunity that he might have just one more chance to finish strong, to do right, even though so much of his life he had done wrong. And I think he probably prayed, God, just give me one chance, just one chance to do what I should have been doing all along. And he was about to get his chance, and here's how it happened. Judges chapter 16. They had gathered together, all the Philistines, all the Philistine leaders, all the military leaders, and they were having this big party, this big drunken party, and this big pantheon, and they brought out Samson just to entertain him so they could mock him. And here's how it went. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he might entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him put on a show. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. And Samson called to the Lord and said, O oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. And he said after that, and let me die with the Philistines. He was willing in that moment to give his life to fulfill the mission he should have been fulfilling all along. That by dying here and and conquering all of the the military elites and leaders of this this nation that has oppressed us and imprisoned us and and taunted our people and enslaved our people, I was never worried about my people. I was only worried about myself. But now in, in one move, God, let me completely take myself out of the equation, willingly laying down my life for your calling, that I may help people that I'll never see again on this side of heaven. Let me, let me think, God, the way you think. Let me put others ahead of myself. And he did that, and he finished strong. So the, the, the lesson is this. Even if you, like Samson, have made many mistakes in the past, it's not too late to finish strong. Because, you see, you, you skip ahead to the New Testament, and there's a chapter in the book of Hebrews that lists out heroes of the faith. It's, we kind of refer to it as the hall of faith, Listen out all these great people from Scripture that did great things. Samson is listed among them. This guy who did so much stuff wrong, his whole life, he, he messed up, but because he finished strong. One moment, one pure-hearted moment of entrusting his whole life, his whole strength into God's hands. And that one moment was enough for him to fulfill his destiny. And he's listed there. But here's what I love about that chapter in Hebrews. Is it lists out all these great heroes, and then it talks about us, Hebrews 11 verses 39 and 40. And all these, all these great heroes. I mean, think about it. You know, Moses and Esther and Joseph and Mary and David, all these, though they were commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So what that verse is saying is God had a plan for each of them. All these heroes we read about in the Bible, imperfect people like us, but still did heroic things. And God's saying their story isn't done because God's still writing that same story, unified story, and we... We have a part in it that's just as important as the part that they had. You and I, that story's not finished. God's story's not finished. He is writing it now through you and me, through the church today. You've got a part in that story. And so don't settle for anything less than the destiny God has for your life. Don't chase pride. Don't chase all this temporary accolades the world will dangle in front of you. Say, God, what do you want for my life? Because my life is in your hands. It's Everything I've got, Lord, is, is for your glory. You think, well, how do I even start with that? Like, I feel like I've blown it so much. I feel like I've done so much wrong. And, and where do I even start? I'm gonna tell you, tell you one more story and I'll, I'll wrap this up. Because when I, I heard this story, it, it kind of changed the way that I thought about life. So when I was a teenager back home in Kentucky, there was, there was a, a guy that was several years older than me named Paul. I didn't know him personally, but I went to school with his younger sister, Kathy. And when Paul was probably about 19 or 20, he tragically was, was killed in an automobile accident. His parents got that call that parents just pray and pray that they'll never get. They had to rush to the hospital. They got there. The worst news of their life was confirmed. And the doctors came out and said, I, I mean, there are no words to express the, the kind of loss that you're facing. And I'm so sorry to even have to ask you this now, but this is a time-sensitive issue. And what do you want us to do with Paul's organs? He was a young, healthy guy and could save a lot of lives if he'd be willing to donate his organs. And Paul's parents, in that moment of grief and shock and everything else, they couldn't believe they were having to make this decision. They couldn't believe they were in this moment, but they said, listen, Paul's not in that body anymore. He's he's with Jesus. He loved the Lord. He's with Jesus. He's in a place now where there's no more death or pain, and we'll see him again. And Paul loved people, and he would want us to do this. He would want lives to be saved as a result of this and so they signed the papers for the organ donation and then they went went home and they started the long process of grieving and trying to figure out how to live life with a wound that will never fully heal on this side of heaven and after about a year they said wouldn't it be neat to go and meet the people that received one of Paul's organs I mean they're they're like family now they're literally our flesh and blood how cool to meet them and they called the hospital and the hospital said, well, it's an anonymous process, but what we can do is contact them for you and see if they wanna meet, and they did. And every single person said, yes, absolutely. We wanna meet Paul's parents. And so Paul's parents went on this, this road trip, meeting these people whose lives had been changed. And the first lady hugged him and kissed them. She'd received one of Paul's kidneys. And she said, I'm gonna to get to watch my grandchildren grow up. I can never thank you enough for what you've did, for what your son did. Thank you. And one by one, they had these tear-filled reunions. And Paul's mom had said, I wanna wait till the very end to meet the the guy who'd received our son's heart. I just feel like that one is gonna be different. It's gonna be special, maybe harder. I don't know what it's gonna be, but I wanna save that for last. So at the very end, they pulled up this gravel drive where this gentleman lived who'd received their son's heart. And before the car had even stopped, Paul's mom flung open the passenger door, jumped out of the car and starts running toward this stranger that she's never met. And he's standing on the porch to greet her. And before he can even say his name or say hello, she jumps into his arms, holds him so tightly that he can barely breathe. And after a few moments of awkward silence, he tries to speak, he tries to say, thank you for coming, he tries to introduce himself. And she says, stop, please just don't speak. And a few more moments passed and she gently pulled away and there were tears streaming down her face, but there was a big smile on her face. She said, I've waited for this moment for so long. She said, when I hold you close to me, I can feel my son's heart beating inside of you. I share that story because what I believe is that the ultimate awakened sleeper moment is when we awake from this temporary life into the world we were created for, into, into, into eternity. And that moment's gonna happen for all of us, just like it did for Paul. Paul. It could happen today, it could happen 50 years from now, but relatively soon, it's gonna happen for all of us. And in that moment, when we've stepped from this life into eternity, what I believe is gonna happen is that our Heavenly Father is gonna run toward us and the arms that created the universe are gonna wrap themselves around us. And in that moment, God, our Father, isn't gonna wanna use his first words to commend us for how much money we made or how good our grades were. I think all he's going to want to say to us in that moment is what Paul's mom said. I think God's going to want to say to us, when I hold you close to me, I can feel my son's heart beating inside of you. I can feel the heart of Jesus, the heart of grace. You did it. Welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. You were part of this family. You put your hope and faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross. You lived for him and you were adopted into god's family as a result that's god's plan for all of us it's something so much more beautiful than a hallmark movie it's something so much more beautiful than the picture on the box of a gingerbread house it's real and in this life it can require a lot of brokenness along the way but jesus is with us every single step of the way So if you find yourself feeling brokenhearted this Christmas or disappointed or frustrated, just remember God is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. He is with you. He is for you. And because of that, you can worship and you can celebrate and you can have gratitude in your heart, even while you're waiting for him to answer that prayer that you've been praying, knowing that he's with you every single step of the way. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for how good you are to us. Thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus on a rescue mission for us, God, not not just to give us another holiday to celebrate, but to give us purpose and meaning in life and hope for life eternal with you. And so today, let us commit or recommit our hearts, our lives into your hands. We thank you, Jesus, for your love. We thank you for what you did on the cross. We thank you for coming for us. And God, let each of us, Let each of us leave this place today in a few moments just feeling lighter and freer because we know you're with us and you're for us. We thank you for that. And I pray your blessing on this incredible church. God, let Keystone Church and its leaders and its members continue, Lord, to experience your blessing, continue to reach this community and the world with your truth as they've done so faithfully. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.